0: I know every Sunday is a good Sunday, but this is a just a, a little better. Um, pretty, pretty neat that uh, you can say that Haynes Creek just saw its first baptism. And I know that we're not supposed to measure the, the kingdom of God. It's impossible to measure the kingdom of God with anything that we have to measure with. But um, you know, a lot of people want to measure success in the kingdom of God. Um, With bigger buildings and more tithes and more people sitting in the pews, Um, I would I would measure the success of a church based on what you just saw there, and then discipleship afterward. Um, And we're committed to doing that. She is not a number. That we're gonna send in to Georgia Baptist Convention and go, hey, look what we did. No, we're gonna. She's gonna get out of the water and she's gonna become a church member, and she's gonna be discipled at this church um, because she is a soul and that has been redeemed by Christ, and she is a sister now. Um, and I think that it, it 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 it's further worship of God not to simply baptize people, but to encourage them into. See that they grow fully in their walk with the Lord. So, I believe that the best way to celebrate the baptism of our new sister in Christ is to preach Christ. It's our second week of Advent as we continue to celebrate the birth of our Lord. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew being the first book of the Bible, or sorry, first book of the New Testament. Therefore, it's probably on the first page of the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Father, you are the God who raises sinners from the dead. You are the God who can take nothing and make something. And that is exactly what you did in Mary's womb. Father, teach us the meaning of this text. Teach us to emulate The Magi, in their giving of gifts, in their worship, teach us the heart of Christmas, and that is worship. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. When I was in high school, the state of Kentucky was experiencing what you might call the dark years of UK basketball. Um, No championships, no Final Fours. Patino was gone. That was back when we liked Patino. Patino. Um, our coach at the time was actually from UGA, Tubby Smith. We'd gotten him after Patino. He'd won a title his first year, but then again, you know, you know how it goes. Well, he he had Patino's players. So he never won one after that. And we were, people were fed up with Tubby, you know. It's kind of like Georgia football, I would imagine. Um, Then there was this, My senior year, there was this kid in Kentucky from Mason County named Chris Lofton, and everybody thought he was just going to be the next Rex Chapman or whatever. That name probably doesn't mean anything. They thought this kid was like the next star who was going to basically resurrect Kentucky basketball again from the dark ages. And the blogging sites were hyping him up, and everybody was talking about him. ESPN was coming to his games. I haven't got a chance to play against him and guard him, but he was really good. And this kid was a lot of ways, and I think kind of, you know, I've I've watched Georgia. I think a lot of people, the the whole momentum with UGA is added to the fact that Jake Fromm is from Georgia. It was the same thing. This kid was homegrown, you know. It was that pride that you had that he's from Kentucky. You know, Cal Perry today, all these kids are from, like, Brooklyn and California. This was a kid that was from down the street. And then come signing day, Lofton got countless offers from all these state schools except for one. University of Kentucky. And people went nuts. This kid didn't get a, didn't get a ride from Kentucky. Didn't even get an offer for a scholarship. And people were just up in arms about how could you have this homegrown talent who was like an hour away from Lexington and not at least give him some kind of scholarship. It was just a travesty. People were blown away. And to make matters worse, he ended up going to University of Tennessee, which I would say is our rival, but I I think everybody just hates Tennessee, naturally. And so this homegrown, long-awaited, highly touted five-star recruit, the answer to all of our problems was sought by seemingly every state but its own. This is very similar to what we're seeing happening in Matthew 2. The ancient scriptures prophesied about this child. The prophets foretold where he was to be born, exactly where. The entire nation of Israel is waiting expectantly for him. This child born in Bethlehem is the Jewish Messiah who's going to finally deliver his people. And when the day finally arrives, when he finally comes to earth... Instead of bursting with excitement, the king of the Jews is troubled to hear about it. Jerusalem can't be bothered to even entertain the notion that they want to even go to Bethlehem. And believe it or not, it's actually three eastern foreigners are the ones, the only ones who show up. Three people that Scripture calls the Magi are the first to worship a god the Jewish people had waited thousands of years for. For thousands of years, God is preparing His people for their King, their Savior, and when He finally arrives, what happens is only can be described as anticlimactic. There were no parades, there are no confettis, in fact, there are no Jewish people at all. There's only an audience of three mysterious men who come in and worship Jesus. It's like having a birthday party and none of your friends show up, just three old dudes. That's how Jesus came into the world. Matthew wants us to see the glaring irony of Jesus' birth. From the very beginning, Jesus' own people rejected Him, and He is already drawing outsiders and sojourners unto Himself. From the very beginning, even from the manger, Jesus is calling the nations. Let's read the first three verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You know, in these three verses, two questions immediately come to mind. One, who are these so called wise men? Two, why is everybody, quote unquote, troubled? I think that's a pretty fair question to ask. I mean, if the the whole Old Testament's been waiting for Jesus to come, why is everybody suddenly troubled that He's come? First, who are the wise men? Well, if you're like me, you've read this story dozens and dozens of times. You know the Christmas story by now, and it's very familiar to you. You've even sang the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are." You know, I used to play piano lessons. That was like one of the few songs I knew. But believe it or not, Scripture doesn't actually, in the Greek at least, call these men wise men or kings. In the Greek, they're actually called magi. That's the word. So what is a magi? Well, most scholars believe they represent the best wisdom that the Gentile world has to offer. They are the spiritual elite in the Eastern world. They're astrologers who generally regarded who are generally regarded in the Greco-Roman world as being able to interpret signs in the fall and rise of kings to foretell future events. I think the irony is that the Jewish elite, Jesus' own people, can't be bothered to even really remember that Micah said He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They can't even be bothered to go down and see Him, yet people have walked from entire countries to come see Him. Leading to our second question. Why is everybody in Jerusalem so troubled? Weren't they expecting Him? I mean, weren't they excited, you know? Well, if you notice, in a matter of three verses, Matthew mentions the word king three times. Both Herod and Jesus are kings, but only one is a real king. Herod is actually half-Jewish. He's not a full-blooded Jew. He's not a real king. He's a usurper. He's actually an Edomite. In 47 B.C., Julius Caesar appoints an Edomite governor to sit over Judea. And eventually his son Herod becomes king, and he appoints himself king of the Jews. The Roman Senate names him king of the Jews, and he's known today as Herod the Great because he built huge architectural wonders. Actually, the second temple in Jerusalem was built by this man. This is why Herod is bothered by the, name of Je- by the news of Jesus' birth, because Jesus is a threat to his throne. This man goes by the name of King of the Jews, but the real king has arrived. This just makes me want to make a Lord of the Rings reference, but I'm not going to. <laughs> the prophets have said that this child will triumph over his enemies and that his throne will be an everlasting kingdom for every corrupt Jewish leader on the scene. That's bad news. It's like Jerusalem is giving one giant collective gulp, if you will. On one side, you have people worshiping a child born in a manger. On the other side, you have people who hate this child born in a manger. And I would suppose 2,000 years later, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. The very first time Jesus came, people either loved him or they hated him. And when he comes again, people either love him or they will hate him. You know, it's easy for us to read this text and make Jerusalem and all the chief priests and the scribes the bad people and never stop to consider that the same thing will no doubt happen again when Jesus comes again. If the kings of the earth shuddered to hear of a baby Jesus, you better believe the kings of the earth are going to shudder at the sound of God coming to judge the earth. And we shouldn't automatically read this text and think that people in power are the only ones who are going to shudder and be troubled when Jesus comes again. Anyone and everyone who has not given their lives to the Lord will stand to lose something when He returns. He'll interrupt our vacation plans. He'll interrupt our investments. He'll interrupt our bucket lists. He'll interrupt our big weekends. He'll interrupt the rich, full lives that we've all been promised just like He interrupted their lives in this text. The only difference is Herod and the wise men, the difference between them is Herod wanted to keep his possessions when Jesus showed up and the magi were ready to give them away. When Jesus returns, will our first thought be on the things that we'll lose or on the kingdom that we're gaining? Are we ready to part with the happiness and the wealth and the influence and the comforts that God has given us so that we can gain God? Herod wasn't. Jerusalem wasn't. And Scripture says that the news of Jesus' arrival was troubling to them, leading me to suppose that everyone who... You know, it's, it's kind of funny. Everybody loves to read about Jesus and talk about Jesus until Jesus is standing at your door. That's when you find out who worships the king and who's sitting on his throne. The next three verses. Verse 4. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. I would imagine, just stop right there, I would imagine the Jewish king not knowing where the Messiah is to be born is like having a U.S. president who doesn't know where George Washington, who he is. I mean I imagine him asking that and all the people are like Bethlehem, you know, that's like that's like prophecy 101 here. Verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew is of course quoting Micah 5 Verse 2, if Herod had been reading his Old Testament, he would have known that the prophet Micah prophesied about the Lord being born in Bethlehem almost 700 years before his birth. This is the city of David. This is where David was brought up. This is where David was anointed king. Bethlehem is where actually the story of Ruth takes place. It's now the birthplace of David's ancestor, Jesus. Bethlehem is only five to six miles outside of Jerusalem. It's the city of Kings. Here's what Herod has to say after he finds that out. Verse seven. then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. and he sent to them and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, "Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him." I think my favorite verse in this passage is verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's just a really super redundant. Like they rejoiced a lot with a lot of joy is what it says. Not they rejoiced. Not they were joyful. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's as if Matthew is being redundant for a reason. He wants us to understand they were happy. The Greek... Word for great is megalen. This is like mega joy here. Can you imagine what these men are feeling in their hearts when they find the Lord of life in that manger? I remember several years ago, the royal wedding in England was like a huge event. I'm not going to poll who watched it, but I know a lot of you women did. I was tempted to watch it. In fact, I think I watched a little bit of it. Do you remember the buzz in America about that? Everybody cared, you know, because we don't have anything like that here. But so many people were fascinated. It was just because it was a royal wedding. It was, it was, it was a, there was a fascination, it was a curiosity, because that thing only happens once in a lifetime. And there was a curiosity and a fascination and excitement about the man who was to become king. It doesn't matter if you're from the Orient, it doesn't matter if you're from Jerusalem, it doesn't matter if you're from England, it doesn't matter if you're from America. Righteous people long for a righteous king to sit on the throne. The excitement that people had about the royal wedding is but a drop in the bucket compared to what these men were waiting to behold when they got there. Except when the magi get there, there are no trumpets, there are no guards, there are no expensive robes, there is but a barn. And there's a baby in a manger surrounded by animals wrapped in swaddling clothes. And yet this child possesses more power, authority, and wealth than any earthly king could imagine. John Calvin says this, "...all that the father had he deposited with his only begotten son in order that he might manifest himself in him and thus by the communication of blessings express the true image of his glory." Meaning, in this baby is the glory of the living God. (coughs) And what do these men do? Well, verse 11, And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is undoubtedly the climax of the passage. They fell to their knees, they opened their treasures, they worshipped the infant king. They showed reverence and respect, they gave offerings and sacrifices of praise, and they adored Jesus. This is a fantastic example of what true worship is. I mean, humanly speaking, you can imagine if they're walked all these ways, probably across countries, they're trying to track down this star, they've got all this gold, and they get there, and the kid's in a barn. I mean, if I was a, uh, you know, at least I would be checking to make sure it was the right place. I would at least be kind of going, you know, make sure that, it is, are you sure this kid is the king? But that's not what they do. What does the Scripture say? They heard of Him, they sought Him, they worshipped Him, they gave everything they had to Him. The church, that is precisely what Jesus demands for us today. You want to know how to worship the King? Emulate these three mystery men from the East. They heard of Him, they sought Him, they worshipped Him, they gave everything to Him. There's just something about three adult men bowing before a baby that is severely humbling. And I believe with all my heart, that is exactly the way God wanted it. What God's saying is, you want to come after me? You have to be willing to worship me when it looks completely foolish to the rest of the world. And there are many people today who think it's absolute nonsense that we worship a God who was born in a barn. There are people today who think it's absolutely nonsensical that we believe that child grew up and died a gruesome, barbaric death to save people. But friends, if you won't bow before the infant Jesus in Matthew 2, lying in a manger, neither will you bow before the warrior king in Revelation 19. If we won't claim baby Jesus as king, neither will we claim Him when He's riding a white horse. And that's precisely what Kelly did this morning when she got baptized. She said, I'm willing to look foolish because I'm declaring my faith in a king who became foolish for me. Jerusalem wasn't interested in looking foolish, and this is what Jesus eventually had to say to Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 23, I'll just read it. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, what I think about when I read the Christmas stories, I think of this. You will either humble yourself before Jesus today, or you will be humbled when he comes again. That's exactly what these magi understood, and that's exactly what Herod did not. You know, in America, I was trying to think about kings because I just don't understand. I'm American. Even if I try to take myself out of my American atmosphere, I I can't because America is all I've ever known. I tried to think about, you know, British people have a king. I don't have a king. And I'll be honest, the American in me doesn't like the thought of having a king. But that's probably just me being American. You see, in America, we don't have kings. We have presidents. We don't have royal weddings. We have sexual assault allegations. We don't bow before our public figures. We mock them and make jokes about them and put them on Saturday Night Live. We don't cry, Long live the King. We talk about how much we'd be surprised if they weren't impeached or assassinated by the time they get out. We are a far cry from having a king. I think if anybody needs a little lesson in what it is to bow before a monarch who is righteous, who is holy, someone who we want to lead us, I think if anybody needs a lesson in Kingdom 101, it's Americans. In America, I think it's safe to say we're a far cry from rejoicing exceedingly with great joy at the news of a king. But there's good news and bad news. All these corrupt, pitiful, tyrannical kings. I mean, in a lot of ways, our country, in a very real way, our country was birthed from tyranny. I think a lot of ways, God is preparing us for the good news that there will one day be a king who will wear a robe of holiness and he will judge the earth in righteousness and every corrupt leader will bow at his feet. I think the bad news for us is that this king isn't someone we elect. And his kingdom is not a democracy. There is no democracy in heaven. There is no republic in heaven. It is an everlasting monarchy and the one sitting on the throne came and was born in a manger. He will have no rivals. And in the end, I want to be a wise man. I want to get in there. I want to bow before a king, before my king. I want to lay down my treasures and I want to worship him. In heaven, we will be doing exactly what these wise men are doing in this text forever. These three wise men were wealthy. We can tell that because of what they gave. And they were willing to lay down their crowns for the king of kings. I think the beautiful irony of the gospel this morning is that our glorious King was willing to become a servant. And that only those who are willing to become a servant will be glorified in Him. Will we lay down our treasures this Christmas? You know, I'm a a dad now. And I was watching the news this week. I'm already... I mean, my kids aren't quite there yet, but I'm already keeping my ear to the ground about the toys that are that are there now I got to get the toys there's something out there about some like ninja robot toy I was watching that's like really big right now with kids this world is telling me that I need a bigger car I need a better house I need better toys I need a bigger TV I need more clothes I need another something that's going to keep me entertained. And yet God here in this text is telling me to bow down before an infant king and to give up my treasures. Your job as a Christian is not to have everything you want and then add Jesus to it. It's to make Jesus everything you want and then give Him everything. This is not sweet and low or Whatever you want to add, Christianity is it or it is nothing. You can't add Jesus to what you have. You either give him nothing or you give him everything you are and everything you own. You know, we don't often talk. We, give, we talk a lot about what the Magi gave. What about how long they came from? Where did they come from? I mean, in my mind's eye, and this might be because I was just raised on like pictures and stuff in Sunday school, but I'm picturing they're wearing like oriental stuff. I don't know what they were wearing. But Scripture makes pretty clear they weren't from around those parts. They came a long way. Herod was a hedonist, he was a hoarder, and as we'll see next week, he was a hunter. But the wise men were humble. We don't even know these men's names. And I think the truth of it is, is I don't think they would want us to know their names. Herod lived to erect his monuments and his statues and all we can remember him is as a tyrant. These men will go down in history as worshipers of Christ. That's how I want to be remembered. That's the heart of Christmas. The more we go... I mean, how many of us have read this text a thousand times? And here we are one more Christmas preaching it again. That's because it never gets old. In fact, we preach these texts, we read these parts of the Bible because we believe that the more we read about the humility of Christ, the more time we spend meditating on the love of Jesus, the closer we come to this story, the more we will want to serve Him, love Him, and lay down our crowns for Him. If you've never done that, if you've never surrendered to this King, if you've never confessed your allegiance to Him, look to Kelly... And then look to him. I think this is an appropriate text because Kelly did not have gold today. She did not have frankincense. I I don't even really honestly know what myrrh is. But if she had it, she probably doesn't have it. But what she did have was, today she had a baptismal, she has you, and all she has today, she said, I'm willing to look foolish, even if I had to get up here and get dunked in water, because Jesus told me to, and because I'm all in for Him. And I think it's an appropriate text, because if anyone was willing to be humbled, it was a God who was born in a barn. And we live in the name of that king. If you've never surrendered to a king, if you've never bowed before him, kind of look at a baptism as like a pledge of allegiance. I don't know if you will grew up doing that. I did that every morning. Who grew up? Raise your hand if you ever did that. That's what Kelly just did. And so I want us to come back to not just celebrating Christmas and saying, oh, cute little Jesus in the manger. That manger, that infant, that baby grows up to be a king, and that is the king we serve. Will we worship him, and will we lay down our crowns? If you've never done that this morning, I appeal to you to surrender to your king. Let's pray. Father, How much grace and mercy you've shown us in Christ. How awesome you are. How vast and immeasurable you are. And yet, as immeasurable is the riches of your mercy. We could never plumb the depths of your love. But what we can do is we can come to the realization that. You took flesh. You walked among us. And the most powerful men on this earth either gave everything for you or they tried to kill you. But we know you're not dead. We know You're alive. We know You rose again. And we worship You this morning knowing that Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. There are no rivals. There is a throne. And You are still sitting on it. Father, this Christmas bring us to the the reason for the season. And that's worshiping a king who became a baby. And all these things we ask in Your Son's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.